0: Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And this week, we're doing something a little bit different. To close out the crazy year that was 2020, I'm bringing on Emma Sandler, our beauty and wellness reporter here at Glossy, and Liz Flora, our senior beauty and wellness reporter here at Glossy, to talk a little bit about what happened and what we can expect in 2021. Hi, Emma. Hi, Priya, thanks for having me. And Liz, how are you? Hi, Priya. I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I'm so excited to have you guys on here today because I feel like people are going to get a sense of not only what our slacks are like, but what how we kind of work together um, on our beauty and wellness coverage. So Emma, Liz, one word we heard a lot this year was the word acceleration. It seemed like every CEO, every CMO, and basically every social media post had that um, kind of tagline. So from your perspective and from where you sit, What did that mean to you? Emma, why don't you go first?
1: Thanks so much. So when it came to Acceleration, I had started out 2020 by covering sustainability. And honestly, I thought it was going to be a topic that I would cover every once in a while. I was actually concerned that I might not have enough to cover, but it ended up being a topic that not only everyone wanted to talk about, but there were some genuine developments that were pretty significant when it came to single-use plastic or to finding alternative sources to plastic. Um, So that was one thing that I really felt accelerated and something that intrigued me when it came to the topic of acceleration is how much people started to really focus on their direct-to-consumer channels. Considering the internet has been around for more than 20 years and e-commerce for the last 15 years, I found it almost strange that DTC was only really now getting the attention that it
0: really deserved. So Emma, a follow up for you. When you think about sustainability and, you know, kind of like the renewed interest there, were you surprised that that was happening in tandem with a global pandemic when it's something that's very expensive and companies think of it as costly and maybe not necessary?
1: Yes and no. The reason I say that is because, yes, it was a surprise in the sense that Brands were finding the time to dedicate themselves to this issue, but no, because global warming uh, and the global climate crisis has been a decades-long conversation, and we're only now reaching a point where certain solutions have become viable options for brands, such as the case of post-consumer recycled plastic, cardboard, paper, etc. So because there's been years-long worth of work on the supply chain, it wasn't actually that surprising that brands were now coming to a point where they could share and employ
0: some of these tactics into their brands. So tell me a few of the examples that you saw in the market, like some of the brands that were doing this well. L'Occitane is one
1: that sticks out to me because they have embedded it for the past few years. So I think when it comes to some of the strides they have made, they are further along than many other larger brands. I think Natura and Co. took a really unique position this year because they have signed on to protect a very large portion of the Amazon rainforest. Um, and with that in mind, there's a lot of issues related to sustainability that aren't merely just about the waste we produce. It's also ultimately a a human rights concern, it's an equality concern, and some of what Natura and Co. is doing with respect to its rainforest initiatives kind of harken back to that. Um, So I thought
0: those are two standout examples for me this year. So Emma, one of the points that you made and one of the accelerations that you saw had to do with D2C, and that's something that Liz actually wrote about this week, um, talking about the D2C capabilities kind of ramping up in a wide uh, array of forms. Liz, what did you think was surprising about that?
2: So, 2020 has obviously been the year of e commerce, but it's also been the year of D2C e commerce specifically. And many brands I've talked to have talked to me about how their D2C e commerce has just skyrocketed during this time. So, not only are there online sales at retailers going up, but they're also seeing huge growth on their D2C sites. So you've seen a lot of investment in functionality on D2C sites. Brands are adding all sorts of things. They're adding shoppable videos. They're adding live streams. They're adding VR store experiences sometimes. Um, They're really ramping up their e-commerce capabilities. They're adding subscriptions. So there's all sorts of things going on in the D2C space and brands are really doubling down on investing in that.
0: Emma, would you say that this is surprising just because, you know, one of the things that you said a minute ago was just that, you know, the internet has been around for 20 years, you know, that this is not new. This has always been um, available to the consumer. But is it really about, you know, functionality and making it easier for the shopper? Or is it about, you know, sexing up the experience and making it a marketing play? I think it is about making it a more
1: exciting channel for people to shop on and honestly engage with as a marketing aspect. We're seeing so much effort when it comes to the digital omni-channel strategy on not simply allowing a person to purchase something as they want and when they want, but also trying to immerse a person in the so-called lifestyle aspect of a brand.
0: So do you think, Liz, going back to you, Liz, um, do you think that like elements like live streaming, elements like shoppable video and VR is incorporating that, incorporating that
2: lifestyle aspect to it? I think what we're seeing right now is brands are really in an experimental phase. They're adopting all these new things that they hadn't considered before in some cases, or in some cases they said, well, we had this plan five years out or something, and it was something we that was just on our radar, but now they're really doubling down and adopting this stuff. So the question is, what is going to actually change the way consumers shop in the long run? So once this pandemic ends, once we have vaccines and people are able to go back in the stores, is everyone just going to go back to normal or are these new things that the brands are adopting going to stick? So what do you think? Are they going to go back into store? Or are they going to stick to live streaming? Well, if we want to talk about live streaming, I live streaming is really interesting and it's something i've really been following closely all year um as you know live streaming really took off in the us when the pandemic hit so all of a sudden when you logged onto instagram you would see 10 different live streams going at once everyone was hosting meditations and yoga sessions and workouts and now you're starting to see the tech platforms really start to embrace live stream shopping Instagram added shoppable live streaming. We saw early adopters in beauty, including Nikita Dragon and You Beauty, the influencer brands kind of before the, um, even the larger beauty brands. Amazon is really doubling down on its live stream programming. It's really interesting to see what Amazon is doing because It's Live streaming used to be this kind of sad feature that was buried in the site, and it's been there for years, but no one even knew it was there. And if you ever clicked on an Amazon live stream a few years ago, it was always something kind of weird looking. But during the pandemic, they're investing in celebrities. They're getting major brands to join. So you see all of these platforms putting a lot of money into live streaming. And the same with D2C sites. Estee Lauder companies, L'Oreal Group, Shiseido brands all have shoppable live streams on their brand sites. And they're bringing in big celebrities. Clinique has done live streams with Amila Clark. Lancôme is live streamed with Chiara Frodeni. So we're really starting to see brands invest in this. And on the question of whether or not consumers are going to adopt this, I think one market we can really look to is the APAC market, especially China. So some really interesting stats out of China. CoreSite Research has estimated that live streaming in China will bring in $125 in sales this year. Which is up from 63 billion in 2019. And they're very bullish on live streaming. They're saying it's already going to be $5 billion in the US in 2020, and they're expecting that to grow to 25 billion in 2023. So there are definitely a lot of people out there who are very bullish on the idea that live streaming is going to change shopping habits in the us especially of millennials and gen z and it's definitely a space to watch and see if that actually comes true
0: so this is kind of a question out of left field but you know my big question around this is that how is what we're seeing on TikTok or instagram or even amazon very different than what we've seen on like platforms like qvc or hsn or is it really just adapting that model onto the platforms that millennials and Gen Z are using.
2: Yeah, it's really similar to QVC actually. The question is, will millennials adopt these live streaming platforms the way that our parents were watching QVC? And we know that the live streaming format works because QVC was a very successful model and is still pretty successful. You're seeing a lot of trendy brands going on QVC now too. In China, live streaming is very much a young people's activity. You have really trendy young influencers doing the live stream shopping and generating billions of dollars worth of sales to millennials and Gen Z. So now the question is, can that reach with young people translate in the United States with all of these brands investing in live streaming, not just to millennials, but also to Gen Z?
0: Emma, I have a question for you about that. You know, with millennials and Gen Z specifically, they're much more um, willing to consider a brand if that brand is transparent and authentic. I mean, with a platform like live streaming, you know, you're seeing all this for the first time very raw, which is something that beauty brands are not known to kind of give up control. What do you think about that? How do you think that's going to play out?
1: Generally speaking, I think brands have become more comfortable with relinquishing that sense of control. They have ceded it to content creators in the past. And so I think the live stream opportunity actually allows for a lot more creativity. I'm imagining a influencer or celebrity spokesperson being able to bring consumers and followers in on their day-to-day life and being able to share the brands that they use in a more subliminal fashion rather than as a direct promotion of that brand or product. So I think when it comes to authenticity and the fact that younger consumers are more capable and more willing to call out brands that they deem inauthentic, I think this allows for a lot more fluidity to take place between
0: those consumers, the spokesperson or the brand. Do you think this puts more pressure on, say, a founder of the brand, someone who may have, may or may not be forward-facing to kind of rise to the occasion? Because although the founder story is so important in beauty, you know, not all of them are, you know, front and center like on Instagram or on TikTok.
1: The founder story is important but I'm a little skeptical of how important it really is. It feels to me that only until a brand reaches a certain cachet or level of awareness does that brand founder story really play a factor in being able to hone back into the authenticity of the brand's existence. But unless you are really with a brand from the beginning or you know the founder to a certain degree prior to the launch of the brand, I'm not sure how much someone in those early days is going to latch onto that story and feel that sense of connection with the brand versus I really like this product or I really like the marketing
0: of this brand. Liz, what's your take on that from the influencer side? Because you've been covering a lot of these newer guard influencers, like the D'Amelio sisters and Addison Rae, who've come out of the gate you know, because of TikTok.
2: One thing that I found was really interesting talking to brands about their TikTok influencer campaigns is they are willing to cede a lot of control to the influencers it's much more than you see on Instagram. I've talked to so many brands where they say, yeah, we were doing this campaign and the influencer told us this is what's going to work on TikTok. This is what's not going to work. I know my audience. I know this Gen Z customer. And they just let the influencer do what they want with it and make their own video. And it's easier than ever to do that now because the influencer is in their own home. They're using their own equipment. They're doing it all themselves. And then they just send it to the brand, and then they put it out. So it's really interesting to see that the brands are really letting the influencers use their own voice and basically advise them on what's best for their audience. And those are the campaigns that really take off. So whenever I've interviewed a brand that had a really successful campaign and I talk to them about why is it successful, they're like, we let our influencer have the main voice in this.
0: Who do you think are some of the influencers right now that are making a mark?
2: Well, obviously, there's the the D'Amelio's and the Addison Rays of the world. One really up-and-coming influencer that I've been looking at is Bella Porch. She has just skyrocketed over the course of eight months, and she has around 40 million followers right now by the last count that I saw. And she just had two really big campaigns over the weekend. She had one with Montclair, and then she had another one with Valentino Fragrance. Um, so she's definitely someone who shows how quickly these influencers just become massive stars. So eight months ago, no one knew who she was, and you can go viral on that platform so fast. Once you have a really viral video, it just explodes. So she's definitely a big beauty star to watch in the year to come. She also did a big video with James Charles, so that's kind of cemented her place in the influencer beauty world for the next year. Would you guys talk a
0: little bit about you know you know some of the influencers that you just mentioned are very makeup centric, which has been a challenging category for you know the larger lot of beauty companies this year. But what about the skin intellectuals or the skin influencers who may have not had really a place on a YouTube or um, an Instagram, but are finding a place on TikTok? What do you guys think about that?
1: I think that's a really interesting opportunity for both TikTok and brands. To get into the education and educational marketing side of things. TikTok is currently testing a learn lab that allows for longer form videos and for people to create and watch videos that are more of that traditional how to version. And I think skin intellectuals, I think people like Skincare by Hiram, I think that there's a massive opportunity there versus, you know, the traditional. This product looks really good on me because it's a highlighter or because it's a blush, which you can more easily translate in a 30-second video on a platform like TikTok.
0: Liz, how do you think this comes into play with the monetization aspect? Because obviously TikTok's going there. You know, it's not always going to be authentic and transparent, and there are going to be brand deals that come out of this. How does that all work?
2: Yeah, TikTok is definitely on a race toward monetization. I think we're going to see TikTok monetize at a much faster pace than we've seen a lot of American platforms. If you look at the Chinese version of TikTok, Douyin, it's very monetized. They have a very strong ad platform. They have live streaming. They have built-in shops. There's many many opportunities to advertise on that platform and you see TikTok going there you've already seen advertising opportunities multiply on TikTok over the past year and the number of major brands that are on the platform and doing major campaigns has also exploded so it's definitely going to get a lot more expensive if it hasn't already and what about some of the
0: newer platforms or newer newer offerings that we're seeing like Instagram Reels or Triller what's your all's take I think ultimately TikTok is going to eat up more
1: of the marketing budget in 2021. I think it will become a TikTok first strategy for many brands compared to Facebook or Instagram. But I also believe that ultimately a marketer's job is going to become more difficult. Their bandwidth is going to become shorter because at the end of the day, if there's an opportunity that is available to brand, they will seize it. And so you're leaving opportunities on the table if you forget or forego Triller or Instagram Reels or Facebook live streaming or TikTok live streaming. So there's a lot more levers that need to be hit now.
2: TikTok is also really interesting because it's the first platform in a while that has really favored the early adopters. So if you look at what Elf Beauty was able to do on TikTok this year, it had that massively popular campaign as one of the earliest brands on it. And now it's up in the ranking of the top five uh, beauty brands for Gen Z. So there is a major advantage to being an early adopter on an app before the other brands get on it. But the question is, which apps are really going to take off? And I think TikTok is very unique and the question is what app will do that in the future what do you guys think about you know the
0: recent facebook news because obviously a lot of beauty brands have you know used their facebook strategy and then tweaked it for instagram or if you're a younger brand you're using your instagram strategy and then tweaking it for facebook live if those companies do have to split what do you think the opportunity is for for brands i think facebook will
1: become less relevant should that occur. Because although Facebook has over a billion people on its platform, and it does speak to certain demographics of people, particularly Gen X and baby boomers, any brand that's looking to reach Gen Z or millennials are going to continue focusing on Instagram. They're going to continue focusing on TikTok. And I think Facebook will just become de-emphasized.
0: Switching gears just a little bit, one thing that we saw in 2020 was the rise of the SPAC, Emma, which you and I have talked about a lot, and it's becoming a new way to enter uh, the public market. Will you talk a little bit about what you're seeing and then if you think that's going to be a viable option going into 2021?
1: Yeah. So to... Provide a little context for anyone who's listening and is unfamiliar with a SPAC. It is a special acquisition vehicle that effectively can also be referred to as a reverse merger. And what that means is that you will have a blank check company go public when they have an intent to merge with a brand at an unspecified date. And then the merged brand becomes a public-facing public company. Uh, A great example of that most recently was Hydrofacial, but it was perhaps more notable when HIMSS went public earlier this year. I think we're going to see more SPACs in 2021 for a few different reasons. First of all, a traditional IPO roadshow can be quite expensive. Uh, Additionally, it opens up a brand to market volatility. When WeWork tried to go public, it was a disaster, quite frankly. So the stock market this year has been very volatile. We have seen record-breaking numbers from the Dow, but we have also seen massive losses that occur in a single day. A SPAC will allow any company to bypass some of that volatility while also saving money on the traditional expensive IPO roadshow. And I think also it is a opportunity that allows a lot of DTC brands who first emerged in the consumer sector by saying, hey, we're cutting out the middlemen to give you added value. I think they like that idea of
0: applying that to a public offering. You know, when I was speaking with Hydrofacial CEO Clint Carnell, you know, he said to me it was really about finding the right partner and, you know, having aligned Uh, values to make something like this work. With some of these companies, is there the possibility of these kind of rando zombie companies coming up? What's your take on that, Emma?
1: There are always zombie startups in the space who have been private with VC or PE backing for over a decade and really haven't done anything. For 2021, I don't think they're zombies, but They are brands that I am intently going to be looking at. And that is Harry's because of the debacle that was the attempted acquisition by that brand early in 2020, uh, but also Glossier. Glossier, I think, has proved everyone in 2020 that DTC and e-commerce is the way to go. I think they've continued to perform well despite the challenges that they've experienced this year. And I think ultimately they are, I think ultimately they have indicated that they are not interested in an acquisition. They're not interested in any kind of merger. They are interested in going public. And I think that's ultimately what
0: they're going to do. From the strategic's point of view, you know, they were very quiet this year. You know, Estee Lauder, Unilever, L'Oreal, you know, even Charlotte Tilbury, who both of you have written about quite extensively, you know, went with a non-traditional partnership. So what do you think their plan is for 2021? That's an excellent
1: question. 2018 and 2019 saw so much activity in that space that I think that led to some of the quietness of 2020 but I think also there are going to be fewer strategic options available even in 2021 there are a few areas where I think there's more opportunity such as anyone who wants to get interested in the wellness sphere but I really think it's few and far between. We might see some middle-sized exits, but I don't think we're going to have a banger year the way we did in 2019.
0: So last question for y'all, even though we'll be talking in just a few minutes on Slack, what are a few of the things that you're going to be laser-focused on in 2021 and our readers can expect from your coverage?
1: One thing that I'm going to be really honing in on this year, and it relates to sustainability, is the supply chain aspect of what's going on. As more brands are interested in post-consumer recycled materials, I want to better understand what the prices look like because everyone's getting more interested. Is there enough of these materials to go around? I'm also interested in looking at the home fragrance area and that portion of the beauty industry because fragrance has been so hard hit this year. But we saw really interesting development with candles, home diffusers, even celebrities like Anthony Hopkins launching a home fragrance brand. So those are a few things that I'm going to be really intrigued to look at further. What about you, Liz?
2: Well, we talked a lot about live streaming, during this podcast, but I think that fits into a broader picture overall of what I'm looking at in terms of social commerce. So we talked so much about how 2020 was the year of e-commerce, and social platforms are really getting in on e-commerce in a lot of different ways. So it's not just live streaming. You're seeing Instagram basically ad shopping everywhere. Instagram is trying to be the new mall. So for example, as millennials, we remember in high school going to the mall and this year, the teens can't do that. So Instagram is really betting on the idea that the new mall is going to be people shopping on their phones. So you've seen the whole layout of Instagram change. They changed the buttons. They've added shopping, not just to live streaming, but to IGTV, shoppable posts. You see a big curated shopping section. So that's really something to look at to see if it's going to change shopping habits once again. You've also seen shopping added to other platforms. Snapchat has a shopping feature. You see beauty brands adopting Snapchat shops and they're connecting it to their video content. That'll definitely be something to look at as well. And basically just digital features in these platforms linking out to e-commerce via D2C. It's not just social commerce versus D2C. They're interconnected. So social has already had obviously a huge impact on the way people shop already but now you're starting to see the platforms really integrate the social and e-commerce features so that'll definitely be something to watch in the future thank you so much emma thanks for being here
0: thank you so much for having me bria and thank you liz
2: thank you this has been great
0: So we'll be back next year in 2021. Merry Christmas to all of you and Happy New Year. And we'll be back with a lot of great coverage you can read at Glossy.co.